Welcome back to First Words with First Farragut United Methodist Church. Thanks for joining us. On Sunday, March 12th, we read about Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well and about what it means to hydrate. When our spiritual sources of hydration seem to run dry, how can we turn to God for living water? Reverend Martha Scott preaches from John 4, verses 5 through 42. Frank and I will be reading scripture this morning from the fourth chapter of John, verses 5 through 42. Speaking about Jesus, he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, You would be asking him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and I will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say, I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You have spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? 
the woman put down her water jug and went into the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples asked each other, Has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more, four more months and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who, those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying that one sows and another harvests. I have sent to you harvest when <clears throat> what you didn't work hard for. Others worked hard, and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be, be to God. God. Yes, I recognize that's a rather long passage of Scripture to read. And thank you, Frankie and Bill. You guys did a great job. And I thought about shortening it. Yes, I even thought about that too and not reading the entire passage. But it could be argued that aside from Holy Communion and baptism, reading the inspired Word of God may very well be one of the most important things we do when we gather for worship. So I really didn't want to shorten it, especially for this reason. That particular story in the Bible contains the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and another person. There are other longer interactions that Jesus has with other people and longer uh, stories or parables, if you will, that Jesus says or relays in Scripture. But this particular passage is the longest one we have between a conversation between Jesus and one other person, Jesus and the woman. And with such a long dialogue, there are so many important lessons contained here that we could examine every single one of them, but we would be here until well after our neighboring churches got out of worship and started going to lunch. So we're not going to do that. But a few of the, a few of the, of the points that it could, it could serve as a reminder that Jesus repeatedly broke social norms by approaching a woman. You did not do that as a male in the ancient world. It serves as a reminder that Jesus adamantly opposes prejudice and racism. It serves as a reminder that God's grace is for all people. It serves as a reminder of the evangelistic nature of the gospel, the story of Jesus. There are a number of important lessons in this particular scripture. I was reading this scripture a few years ago, and having known all of those lessons and having known a lot of the um, historical details involved in it, as I was reading it and reflecting on it, it stuck out to me that this particular scripture 
could be summed up in one topic. It's about worship. It challenges us to ask what or whom do we worship? And does what we worship or who we worship hydrate or fuel our souls? Jesus was noted for turning water into wine. Today, we see Jesus turn water into worship. In our series that we're using to guide us through the season of Lent, entitled A Boot Camp for the Soul, we're looking at some topics in Scripture that can point to a, a soul-deep transformation. We can have soul-deep transformation any time of the year, but the season of Lent challenges us to really go deeper than normal as we journey to the cross and then the celebration of the resurrection. This phrase, a boot camp, is, is a common term in today's world, and, and, and it's often used, yes, in military contexts, but it's often used in fitness contexts and, and exercise and that sort of thing. There's job boot camps, all sorts of things. But the underlying intent of those boot camps in today's world is to go into a time of intense preparation or a time of intense intentional change. And for us, that journey is lit. Some of those physical boot camps, when it comes to physical exercise, we need hydration. Must have hydration to carry oxygenated blood to our bodies so that we can do the physical work. Water hydrates and fuels our body. And this whole interaction that Jesus has with this woman centers around a well and a woman who came seeking water. She came seeking literal hydration in the form of water, but what she found instead was spiritual hydration, what Jesus calls in the scripture, living water. He told her, whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. There are many ways that we can quench our physical thirst. <clears throat> Excuse me, speaking of thirst. We can drink sugary sodas. And while initially they do quench our thirst and they taste good, they're going to make us even more thirsty. We could quench our thirst with energy drinks, and for a while that works. But when the physical and the mental high runs out and we crash, we need more. We could quench our thirst with salty water or even stagnant or dirty water, but in the end, that's probably not going to have a good outcome either. Jesus uses this concept of living water to describe a spiritual hydration of sorts that suppresses our hunger and thirst for things that simply won't satisfy. And this woman is identified as a Samaritan. Jewish people despised Samaritans, but the Jewish people, ones from Jerusalem, I guess you would say, or original, and the Samaritans did not. They shared ancestry, but they didn't get along. How many Harry Potter fans do we have? All right, Harry Potter fans, you know what a pure blood is, right? A pure blood magic person, and you know what a mud blood is, right? For you non-Harry Potter fans, there's pure blood magic people, and there's those that are not, but they have magic. That's kind of the same thing that's happening here. Jewish people despised the Samaritans. Centuries ago, they had been carried off by the Assyrians, and when they were carried off by the Assyrians, they began to intermarry with other tribes, other nations, and so they were mixed-race people, if you will. Then there were other pure Jewish people who hadn't done that, and they did not like each other. 
It was essentially prejudice. And Jesus, in his interaction with this woman, shows us that that has no place, no place whatsoever in the gospel of Jesus. So as the Samaritans, centuries before, were carried off and began to intermarry with these other people, they settled in this land, but they still wanted to worship the one true God. So they built a temple which is typically what they did. They believed you had to have a temple in order to worship God, so they built a temple on a nearby mountain. And what began at that point was establishing a controversy of where true worship could take place. Hence the reason the woman says to Jesus, Sir, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you and your people say it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus responds to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. Now, that kind of seems like a little bit of a no-brainer to us today. Now, while we gather in this building called a church, very similar to what they would have called a temple, while we gather in a building at a place to worship together for what we call corporate worship, we do do that. Most of us tend to recognize, however, that we can worship God anywhere. We recognize today that God is not tied to one physical location. Some of you worship God out in nature. Some of you enjoy gardening, and that is one of the ways that you experience God. Some of you, if you're like me, you enjoy the quiet little corner alone in your house, and that's where you can worship God. Some of us worship through music. There are many, many ways in which we do this, and we know that these days. But that was a radical new teaching for the ancient world. They thought God was constrained to a geographic region or that God actually dwelled in a temple. What Jesus is telling this woman is a new thing. God is not constrained to a location. God is not constrained to a particular people or a particular tribe or a particular race. God is not constrained by that. God is not constrained by rituals and rites. Yes, they're important, but that's not all there is. He's trying to help her understand God is everywhere. And it was a radical thought. What Jesus is referring to here is what I have come to realize through authors Phil Maynard and Eddie Pipkin is called a life of worship. Going to worship and living a life of worship are two different things. They feed on each other, yes. A life of worship is vastly different than attending worship. Maynard and Pipkin have a a continuum model in this book. And Randy, I don't know, do we have these on the screen? Are there a few sentences coming up? Maybe? No. Didn't think we had time for that. In this book, Maynard and Pipkin, the book is entitled Disciple Like Jesus, Making Disciples Like Jesus Who Make Disciples Like Jesus. And what they're trying to teach in one aspect of this is this life of worship. And so they have this continuum, which means you progress along, and it starts with this category. I attend worship when a friend invites me, when it's convenient, or when I feel a need. 
That's the beginning. Then as you move on, the statement is this. I attend worship regularly, but I'm growing to realize that I must attend to God every day. Do you see the progression? And then the next category is I attend worship regularly and set aside time daily for personal worship. That's the out in the outside. That's the prayer time. That's the music, whatever it works for you. And then the fourth and final category along this continuum is this. I honor God in the ways that I work, play, and engage others in relationship. Now, you may find yourself on any portion of that, that continuum. It may be I attend worship when I feel like it. That's okay. It may be that you've progressed already and you want to progress even further. The point is it's a continuum of building a life of worship. A life of worship asks these questions. How do I choose to use my time? Am I thoughtful about the way I spend my hours, or am I just frivolous about how I spend my time? Am I intentional about my time? It asks, how do I, use, how do I choose to use the resources God has provided? Do I keep the needs of others in mind, or am I focused on fulfilling my own needs and desires? It asks, how do I focus on loving my spouse or family or other important relationships? It asks this very next difficult question as well. How will I interact with a difficult person? Who and what we worship helps us answer that question. It asks, what priority do I place on spending time with God? It asks, a life of worship asks those questions and many more. But how we respond to those questions reveals what we worship. Who and what we worship will either hydrate and fill us or it will drain us. A life of worship is lived with an awareness and a celebration of the presence of God in all moments of every day, all day. For the woman whom Jesus met, her spiritual well had pretty much dried up. Jesus told her several things about herself that we could, we could spend hours dissecting what all of that means. But he told her things about herself that indicated she had a life of regret and shame. The sheer timing of the day that she went to the well indicated that she was shunned by her own community. She had had five husbands and was currently living with one who wasn't her husband, which was a massive no-no in the ancient world. But an encounter with Jesus turned all of that around. And the woman at the well drank deeply of this living water of worship that Jesus offered. And she immediately became a gushing spring as she bubbled over with joy that she simply could not contain to herself ran all the way back to the city center, told the town, the same town who would shun her, and they came with her. And they became believers and followers in Jesus. A life of worship hydrates and fuels us for the joyful journey of life. Is it always easy? No. I wish it was, but it's not. But when we engage in a life of worship, we experience a growing awareness and delight in God's presence in all aspects, all days, and all times. 
So as we continue this Lenten journey of soul-deep transformation, where is God nudging you to move from attending worship to a life of worship? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, our sermon comes from John chapter 9. We are all defined by or as something. Descriptors such as beautiful and ugly, intelligent or dumb, funny, boring, rich, poor, tend to be used to define us. The people in Jesus' day did the same thing. The man in John 9 was defined by his blindness until Jesus healed him. Jesus takes our imperfection perceived classifications, and redefines who we are. See you then.